Welcome to the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown Podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again, we've got Mr. Ben Avery, also known as one of the hosts of Welcome to Level 7. Welcome back, Ben. Hi, thanks for having me back. Oh, no problem. Seems like a very good fit for this particular topic. <laughs> yes. I jumped on this one, yeah. Yeah, this, for those of you listening at home, this is The Strange Tales and Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., or more specifically, the Jim Steranko run on Nick Fury, which includes the Nick Fury stories from Strange Tales 151 to 168, as well as issues 1, 2, 3, and 5 of the original Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. series. Now, most of these were written by Jim Steranko. In some collected editions, they'll throw in the issue prior to it, we also have a couple that are just art by Steranko and scripts by Stanley or Roy Thomas or Plots. Pencils by Steranko, sometimes with assists by Jack Kirby. Inks by Jim Steranko, Bill Everett, Frank Giacoya, Joe Sinnott, Dan Adkins, and John Tartaglioni. Colorists, I actually unfortunately can't name. They were not credited in this era. Lettered by Artie Simic, Sam Rosen, and Jerry Feldman. And edited by Stan Lee. The cover dates range from December 1966 to October 1968. And the release dates range from September 8, 66 to July 2nd, 1968. It came in at number 36 in our countdown. All right, so let's get to it. The Jim Steranko run on Nick Fury. Now, we probably should start off talking about a little bit of the history, why this started as Strange Tales, and then shifted into its own title. I think a lot of readers are familiar with it, but I don't know if it's all of them. So you, have you heard the story behind this? Well, even I'm not real, real familiar with it. No, I, I mean, I just know it was shared with Doctor Strange. And honestly, there was a couple covers in my collected edition where I wanted to read the Doctor Strange story because it looked really interesting. But um, yeah, I, I don't know a lot of the background here for how it came about other than Steranko, I mean, kicked tail on this and he got his own book out of it. So it's, it's yeah, it. Did. Yeah. All right. So in the late 50s, there is the seduction of the innocent. We've talked about that before with Frederick Wortham and, you know, people who are accusing comics of leading to corruption in the day's youth. And a lot of the publication companies were folding. Some of the distributors refused to produce comic content anymore because there was so much public backlash. And one of the side effects is that the publishing company or the distribution company, I should say, that then called Atlas Comics was using went belly up. And the only publisher and distribution arm that they could get their hands on that was willing to work with them was one owned by the same company that owned DC Comics. So that deal limited them to a set number of publications per month. I've heard eight, but that doesn't seem to match up with the publication list I've seen. Some months they've seemed to have published as many as 12 issues. So that deal may have started at eight and grown a little bit, but that's the way it began. So Marvel was essentially having their books printed and distributed by DC. Huh. for most of the 60s. And because they had a limit on the number of titles, but they wanted to expand their line and appeal to more readers, it was very common to have anthology titles back then, so they had a number of split books. So Strange Tales, issue 101, they started the Human Torch solo series. You can check out the Fantastic Cast to find out why you shouldn't bother to read it. <laughs> I have. <so. laughs> uh, starting with issue 110, it was shared with Doctor Strange. The Human Torch run wrapped up in 134, and Nick Fury became an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. with 135. He had already appeared as Sergeant Fury in his Helen Commandos in that title. Yeah. Yeah, that was where he first appeared. 
Uh, he'd shown up as a CIA agent in Fantastic Four 22, I believe. And then with Strange Tales 135, they decided to basically cash in on the whole James Bond popularity and give a James Bond-style title a run. Uh, originally, it was not by Starenko. He took over, as we said, around issue 151. And that's where we see a major shift. In the late 1960s, Marvel was successful enough that they were able to find other publishers and distributors. The Wortham thing had calmed down enough that they were able to break away. So they were thinking, hey, you know, there seem to be a lot of fan mail from people who like both Iron Man and Captain America from Tales of Suspense, and both Submariner and The Incredible Hulk from Tales to Astonish. So they started splitting the books. So these books that had two characters running in them to you know, get more characters out there when they had restricted titles started splitting up. Now, because of tax and postal fees to putting out new publications, half of the books kept the original numbering. So Captain America continued with the Tales of Suspense numbering, Doctor Strange continued with the Strange Tales numbering, and the other half, your Iron Mans, your Submariners, your Nick Furies, they got new number ones when the books were split. So that on paper, Strange Tales didn't go away, it just became Doctor Strange. So instead of doing two new titles, they were just doing one new title and having to pay for one new title. Exactly. Yeah. I did not know any of that, honestly. Like that's this is completely new to me. Now I I probably would know if I'd actually maybe read like the unofficial history of the Marvel comics or those kind of things. But yeah, the, I <laughs> that's kind of cool actually. I didn't know any of that. Okay. Yeah, a lot of this came out kind of by happy accident and circumstance. So that's where it was. And Strange Tales, for my money, if you go back and read those books from the '60s, by the time Nick Fury comes in, especially under Jim Steranko's pencils and typewriters. Strange Tales with the combination of Doctor Strange and Nick Fury was, I think, the best of the anthologies that Marvel was publishing in the late 60s. Mm. But we may be getting a bit ahead of ourselves on that. <laughs> so that's why this starts off as Strange Tales and becomes Nick Fury as a solo title. That solo title, it's debatable about whether it ran for 15 or 18 issues. Steranko only did the first few. Issues 16, 17, and 18 were reprints. So whether you count new covers over reprint content as issues in the series or not, that's a personal thing. I've got the first 15. I consider my collection complete because I don't really buy just covers for the sake of covers. Yeah. Well, actually, that, I mean, that's a thing right now. I mean, that's a big thing right now is the extra covers. Yeah. And I'm, I, I get why some people enjoy that. I will not begrudge them. I will not say they're wrong. I'm just not one of them. So if you enjoy it, knock yourself out. Every book sold just make the in, makes the industry that much healthier as long as it's not like the speculators market in the 90s. Yeah, I'm with you there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's, yeah, as long as the, the main reason you're buying them is because you want to own them and not because you want to, you know, pay for a kid's college with them, we're all in good shape. All right. So, yeah, as far as the significance of this goes, this run is much of what defined Nick Fury. The first few were, I don't know, before Starenko took over, I would, have you read those issues, Ben? I've read some of them. Not a lot. And I kind of, in my notes, I wrote how much I, I love Lee and Kirby. I do. I do. But they're hit or miss for me still sometimes. I mean, they just, and, and you know, the, even some of the early stuff that Stranko was doing, where he's just coming off of what Lee and Kirby were doing, it feels kind of rote. And, and so the, what little I have read that from before this, it just, it didn't make an impression on me. It wasn't that interesting to me other than, hey, Kirby. Prior to this, I'd say it's, a lot of what we're seeing was more like get smart without the slapstick. 
it was very mundane, done in one, you know, let's get out there. And with Stanley, he's always trying to inject some humor in it. Mm-hmm. And as, as you said, you know, when Steranko starts off, it's not really his thing for a couple of issues. Some collections even include issues that Steranko wasn't a part of just because when he does step in, it's in the middle of a story arc. Yeah, dead center. What it basically boils down to is that Lee and Kirby had so much on their plates when they were expanding the line and coming up with these new titles, something had to give. So the Stranka run kicks in when they gave this away. And I think Lee and Kirby, when they're focused and feel like they have enough time to do the jobs right, there are few collaborations that will do a better job than they will in this industry. Their Nick Fury doesn't feel like this is the one that they were putting their creative energies on. It felt like this is one that they were cranking out. And the passion was in other books. Well, and the, even in this collection that I have for the Steranko stuff, Lee is writing the first few. And I, again, I feel it's rote. I feel it's, we're just doing it, you know, cause somebody's got to do it right. And so it's, it's going to be me cause I'm Stan Lee. <laughs> and, uh, I just, I feel like it's, it's kind of by the numbers. I feel like it's, I, I think lifeless. Now I'll, I'll say this right now. I mean, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, when they're on, they're amazing. And some of Stan Lee's, stuff i'm just like this is great this is great this is why he is who he is same with kirby uh although i kind of came late to the kirby party actually with his 2001 book when i was reading that for uh the comic book time machine and i started realizing okay this is the imagination of kirby just going crazy but then uh, with with these first few issues i was get i felt like they were tedious i was not enjoying them i actually wrote in my notes this dr strange title that i want to read that story I don't want to read another Nick Fury story that Stan Lee wrote. And slowly then, especially as Steranko comes in, we start pulling away from that. But at the beginning of this collection, well, this collection, 300 pages long. And I'm just thinking, is this, is this going to be the whole way? Is it going to be like this? <laughs> as I'm reading through these, whatever, you know, 18 or whatever issues from Strange Tales, it, what I, what have I got myself into? Because this really was the first time I really sat down to read, uh, this lengthy, collection i'd read a couple of the issues a couple of the individual issues uh, at the end of the run and a few at the beginning before this but this is basically sat on my shelf waiting for a reason to crack it open so at the beginning i was a little worried at the end i was really happy that i had sat through the whole thing and read through the whole thing because it i mean we'll get to the end when we get to the end but here at the beginning yeah turning the pages were almost painful for me yeah it really felt like Sterenko was hired to tell a, a story that Stan and Jack created mm-hmm. but didn't have time to finish. So it's, you know, Stanley was on the script and the doing the story outlines, and then Steranko was drawing pencils around Jack Kirby's thumbnails and layouts. It, I get why they included it, because Steranko did it, but those first few issues, he's barely more than a pencil pusher. It feels like he's got no creative input. It's true, but I, again, I'm glad for it now, though. Having gotten through the whole thing, I'm glad that I actually read those where Stan Lee was writing and Jack Lee, Jack Kirby was doing the layouts, which I can't imagine. I'm not an artist. I'm a writer. You know, I can't imagine, though, as an artist trying to take someone's loose outlines and turn it into, you know, their vision, you know, because that, that's what you're doing. You're trying to find someone else's vision in the layouts, uh, even more so than like an anchor, because an anchor is trying to, you know, pull out the best lines and make it, you know, let's make it pop and, and find, OK, well, when he's penciling this, what is he actually drawing here? But even I can't imagine being a penciler who's doing that with someone's outlines and much less Jack Kirby's outlines. But then I, I see that as the beginning because uh, of something really special. 
You know, this those him taking Jack Kirby's outlines, and then you can see his artwork still kind of trying to ape that Jack Kirby style. You can kind of see Steranko kind of emerging as, as you as you go along, where he's not trying to be Kirby anymore. He's letting himself be himself, and then it just gets it just gets wonderful to oh, me. Yeah. It's just it's just gets beautiful. It's it's just a a very unique piece of comic book sequence, I guess from. You know, issue one one fifty one through issue five. Um, it, it's interesting. I, I it was a joy for me, honestly, to, to to sit down and read through the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, I would say that this is this is the reason Nick Fury is the character he has become, both in comics and film. I mean, yes, as we said prior to this, Nick Fury's first solo title, he was the toughest nail sergeant of a World War II fighting group, and that's it. It was just kind of a lark where they threw him into Fantastic Four number twenty two which was right around the time Marvel decided to do a shared universe. At one point, I was reading my entire comic book collection in publication order, and all of the Marvel titles appeared independent of each other until, I believe it was March 1963. Uh, It was right around there. It was the cover date of Amazing Spider-Man issue one. Hmm. In that month, suddenly every Marvel Comics title referenced another title. Huh. So they were trying to drive the shared universe, which seemed to be an idea born out of cross-promotion. You know, the X-Men threw off this idea that maybe Namor's a mutant. You know, people just make casual mention of Iron Man or Thor. And, you know, right around this time, I think that one was a big Fantastic Four Hulk crossover. But, you know, later on, Nick Fury shows up in Fantastic Four, and it was early in the Sergeant Fury and his Helen Commandos run. So I suspect that the idea was, well, we'll bring him in as kind of a crossover to get some eyes pointed over at that title, because that's one of the ones that Stan and Jack had the most passion for, having actually served in World War II. And, well, how do you bring a World War II guy into the post-World War II world. Well, you can do it with time travel, but then he knows how the war is going to end, and that messes up the tactics and the storytelling they've got over there, because Sergeant Fury's books, they were science fiction like James Bond is sci-fi, right? The bad guys might have a weapon that's beyond current technology, but it's really more extrapolation of engineering than science. Mm-hmm. Right? That was about it. You didn't have characters coming back from the dead, which means a lot when they kill someone that early in the run. One of the, the original commandos does not make it to issue 12. Yeah, I, that's another one. I have that essential edition. Of, of that. And I wish they had gone further with it because, I mean, that, that lasted a long, long time. But did it last into the 80s? At least through the se- some of the 70s. Yeah, I believe, I know there was new stories being published in the 70s and the last few years were reprint oh, issues. Okay. So the, the reprints may have still been coming out in the 80s, but the last new story was written in the 70s. But I, I have a feeling, though, if we hadn't had Steranko do this, do what he did with Nick Fury and, and be able to, I mean, we say do what he did with Nick Fury. It's possible that whatever he'd been put on, he would have done this kind of thing with it, where just put his spin, his his pop art spin, I guess, maybe on it. We'd still have Nick Fury, but he'd be that character that that kind of obscure. We need a CIA agent again. OK, let's bring out Nick Fury because he had a patch. He kind of was cool. you know. And, and and because of what Steranko did, he made such a splash because of Steranko, not because of Nick Fury, but because of who he was and what he was doing. I think Nick Fury just kind of ended up writing Steranko's coattails into some really interesting storytelling uh, with with some of the later graphic novels that he was a part of and, and miniseries and um, up until, you know, Iron Man, the movie, and yeah. and then even into uh, original original sins and, and that. So, yeah, I mean, Steranko launched Nick Fury into what, what should have been or could have been a D-list character <laughs> as, as the modern version anyway. Yeah, he... Nick Fury could have been a spy the way Trish Tilby's a reporter. If you happen to be a fan of that X-Factor series, 
when she shows up, you go, amazing. If you're not a fan, <laughs> then when she shows up, you don't even necessarily register the character existed before. Because it just served the purpose of, oh, it's a reporter. Yeah. For those, yeah. Or which one of those people would be me? <laughs> yeah, that could easily be Nick Fury the spy. But as you said, Steranko pushed the comic medium. I mean, if we want to talk about the impact this had on the industry, it did have a massive impact in the storytelling, partly in the maturity. Like, Steranko seemed to, you know, unlike a lot of his contemporaries who would look at the Comics Code Authority as, you know, things to avoid, it's almost like he read the guidelines and said, okay, how close to that line can I get without crossing it? Yeah, it's it's the Monty Python effect. I feel like when they did The Meaning of Life, which they realized, hey, it's movies. We can do an R-rated movie. It's okay. We can do whatever we want. It wasn't as funny as when they were pushing against the censors and trying to see how far can we go. And and so even in you know some of the movies that they were doing before Meaning of Life, they were still holding themselves back a little bit, but then pushing themselves. It was, there's a uh, just kind of a, a push and a pull going on. And you definitely see it here. Uh, if you have the collection, you can see there's a couple pages where they print his original pencils or original design and and then it's not that's it's not the same as in the actual artwork that was printed and he was pushing the envelope he definitely definitely was oh yeah and in more ways than one there's yeah there's things he wanted to do that couldn't be done those of you who are out there and counting pages in comics and other publications you may have noticed that most comics when they're bound the page count is a multiple of eight Uh, if it's a prose novel it's usually a multiple of 16 A lot of modern Marvel comics, there's 28 pages between the covers, but that's because the covers are now the same stock as the pages. So it's 32 pages, and they just don't stick a cover on top. It's just the content. But the reason it's that set number is because they're not printed on the size of sheets that we get when they're published. They're printed on larger sheets that are folded and refolded and packaged together. And then they just trim off the edges, kind of like when you made paper snowflakes in grade school or elementary school. You would fold a piece of paper seven or eight times, cut triangles and stuff out of the corners, try not to cut all the way down the spine that had the final fold, and then when you unfold it, there's holes all the way through the page. Steranko understood the publication side well enough that he, at one point, decided an eight-page foldout. <laughs> so that foldout that blew everyone's minds in Ultimates Volume 2 by Brian Hitch, Steranko was trying to do it in the 60s. And when he brought it to the publishers, they said, no, you can't have fold-out pages because of the way it's cut. And this is before anyone had even had a two-page foldout, where you just open it once. And Steranko was saying, no, we can do the eight-page foldout in the comic medium. I mean, magazines had done it, but comics hadn't. And he went through with, here's how you orient the pages when we give them to the publisher. And here's how the publisher cuts and folds the page so you get the eight-page foldout. He designed the whole thing. And the only reason it didn't happen is because when they took it to the publisher, the publisher said, we'll do it for X number of dollars. And it was a greater number of dollars than Marvel felt the sales on that title warranted, so they didn't do the investment. But he was already there, not just saying, here's the art I want to do, let the publication and production people figure it out. He's the one that said, no, here is the complete solution. I'm giving you everything but the cash to do it. And it shows in so many of these pages. I mean, a lot of this is Nick Fury, because Nick Fury was the title character. But Steranko really ramped up S.H.I.E.L.D. So S.H.I.E.L.D. became the super spy agency under his pencil. It was you know, beyond the Goldfinger James Bond gadgetry and turned him into more like the full-scale MI5 things that we're seeing in the Brosnan era. He upgraded every aspect of their tech before they had flying cars and the helicarrier and that neat little barber shop, and that's about it. Well, there's some Kirby tech. That first page, actually, for my collection, anyway, from, was it, issue, yeah, issue 151, 
he's driving this funky jetpack thing with like duck feet and jets coming out of the back, jets coming out of the sides, jets coming out of the handhold controllers. And then he just leaves it in the middle of the desert, you know, but because he, mm-hmm. he he's, he's got a mission to do. But he it just I mean, it's it's Kirby stuff, though, and it's totally impractical and yet completely almost believable, I guess. But there is some of that stuff going on. But the you bring up the barbershop, though, that was something they used in Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the TV show. And there there again, you know, the stuff we got in the movies wouldn't be happening. But for what Nick Fury did with with this with with the shield organization, like you were saying with Steranko. And yeah, I mean, there's so much stuff that we enjoy now. We just wouldn't. It, it might have happened in a different way, but we wouldn't have it at all if, if without without what Stranko did. And it's it's interesting to, to see that just that effect that he had. I also wonder how jealous Jack Kirby might have been because Stranko ends up getting a lot of freedom and he actually gets to write the book and draw the book. Mm-hmm. And Kirby wanted some of that. And that's a big reason or a big part of why he left Marvel in the, the first first go round was he just wasn't able to have that freedom that he was able to when he went to D.C. and do some of the new gods stuff and and that. But Strankel, here's this young buck coming up and, oh, yeah, we're going to let him write it, too. And, and we're going to let him you know go crazy with format. And I have a quote that I found. I, th- I think it's from Marvel Masterworks that Roy Thomas had written a, an introduction to. But he says, my genuine enthusiasm for Strankel's work was tempered. Only by the fact that, like several others, I had made earlier attempts to introduce at Marvel some of the approaches with then Jim would have been identified, only to come afoul of Stan's edicts against wordless pages, story titles that emerged, Escher-like, out of the, the backgrounds, etc. Well, all that did was prove that Jim's strategy to introduce his innovations without... Sorry, man, I can't read my own handwriting here. But anyway, I mean, Roy Thomas, they, they were jealous. They were jealous of... Of what he was doing. I said Escher-like. Yep. I just screwed that up. It's, I think it's Eisner-like. Yeah. Because when I'm reading the later on stuff, I mean, I'm, I'm seeing a merging of Jack Kirby and Will Eisner into Steranko. And yeah, but they were jealous of him with good reason. He got to do a lot of cool, cool stuff and they were being held back. Yeah. And as he implied in that quote, a big part of that could be because part of Steranko's philosophy, as you said, redrawing pages because they were rejected and things like that. Seems to be, well, it'll be easier to get forgiveness than permission. Yes. <laughs> so he wasn't asking. He was just doing the things no one else was allowed to do and then turning them in for publication when they didn't have time to fix anything other than, well, you know, change this person's attire to fit the the Comics Code Authority. And I, I think some of that actually came out of that he was writing and drawing. And so he got some latitude there that Jack Kirby wouldn't have been able to get because Jack Kirby was doing the Marvel method over there with Stan. And busting through 8,000 books a month. And Stranko's over here doing his, you know, he's doing his thing. And, and they're just letting him, it's a, it's a B book, you know, it, it's, it's not Spider-Man. It's not Fantastic Four. It's Nick Fury and Doctor Strange. Yeah. As far as sales are concerned, yeah, it is a B book. But creatively, I, I do think it was one of the most innovative titles of the era. I mean, not just with the multi-page spread, with some of the early, I actually cannot think of an earlier two-page spread in Marvel Comics. You know, maybe the odd issue of Fantastic Four with some of Kirby's photo plates, but nothing like this that became such a part of the storytelling. We've got the Contessa, who was introduced and created by Steranko when he was looking at the super spy agency and going, you know, girls can be spies too, <laughs> and brought her in there. And she became 
a huge part of it. One of my favorite all-time runs of this millennium is Jonathan Hickman's Secret Warriors run. And that just simply would not exist as it does in any way, shape, or form. No. It's Durango's Nick Fury. He was drawing so heavily on what was laid down there. And that's a lot of what came out as impact on the industry. He Steranko was publishing this stuff. People accepted it. It became part of the Marvel brand. So after this, you know, when your Roy Thomas's and your Jack Kirby said, I want to do this, it's a lot harder to say no when they're going, but you let Jim do it. And it worked. <laughs> yeah. You can say what you will about a wordless page, but if you do it well, it looks really good. And it's kind of interesting and fresh and new. Oh, yeah. He, he definitely did the job. And that's a big part of the impact it had on the industry. So even if you're not a fan of Nick Fury, who's... I, I would say he's certainly been more successful as a guest star than as the lead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. He's... In the 90s, his his series ran 47 issues, I believe, and that's, I think, the longest he's ever had. He's a he's a great supporting character because he comes in literally as support. He's... Shield's here. We're going to help you out. And we're going to chase Godzilla or whatever. But it's... It's it's a great supporting kind of of organization, and it's 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 needed in the Marvel universe. And if you look at the way they use it for the cinematic universe, it's it's well done for the most part. But it's because they needed some sort of glue, and and that they get it there. The Marvel universe, the comic universe itself, I mean, it's so big. You know, to have these familiar faces pop up and have you know a guy with a patch, you know, pop up. He, he's recognizable. He's easily recognizable because of that patch but then he also has that that attitude as well and it's and and then now moving into some of the comic stuff that they've or not comics the the cartoon stuff with you know ultimate spider-man and that where they're using nick fury to basically be the mentor and to be the the guy who's who's pulling spider-man along to and pushing him to you know fit fit in the mold but also get better at what you do and it's the way they've been able to use nick fury now again launching from Duranko's coattails way back then, and which is kind of funny to me too. When you look at some of the stories he was telling, you know, there's like that gothic mystery that they do in Scotland, and um, it, it's it's interesting that that it went where it did uh, when when he was oh the one toward the end of the Strange Tales run where it's like just this dream of a alien invasion. Uh, it's not all spy stuff that he's doing. It's it's he's pushing the art form is what he's really wanting to do, and he just has a spy character that he gets to use to to do it. Yeah. And he the the difference in the stories and the stakes that he's seeing as opposed to the the Kirby and Lee run. That's the reason that when Nick Fury shows up as its supporting character in well what 35 years between the end of the Starenko run mm-hmm. and the the movies or 30 years if you just go to the 90s series because of the scale and what is and what shield became as part of this run when Nick Fury walks in the room it's not oh hey that guy it's, oh, that's Nick Fury. The stakes are way bigger than any of us thought. And he knows yeah. what's going on. We're going to learn so much more because Nick Fury is the guy who knows all the secrets. For a guy who in issue 135 didn't think he was right for the job, I can't <laughs> think of anyone better for this job. And the other big thing we got out of this is we got David Hasselhoff playing Nick Fury. <laughs> I, I I just got to go there just just briefly. But, I mean, without this, we wouldn't have that for what it's worth. And it's worth a good laugh or two here and there. So I'm just, just putting it out there. Just putting it out there. Yeah, it, it did give us that. It, <laughs> it also gave us Baron Von Strucker and mm-hmm. yep. you know, Hydra along with him. That, you know, Hydra became what it became as a result of this. It gave us Scorpio. It did a lot more with life model decoys 
which have had, you know, big impact on what's coming up in the future. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is just one of those ones. It's tough to do a plot synopsis over a run this long that's got multiple stories. There's some coherence and there is some tie-ins, but essentially what it does is it takes run-of-the-mill James Bond knockoff and turns it into its own thing, which is about Nick Fury running a spy agency. And it it's not James Bond anymore, right? He is not the agent who goes on missions assigned by M with Q's gadgets that have you know, almost no practical purpose, but happen to work perfectly on this particular mission. Which happens. I mean, that's that is one of those things here where it was a gaffer, I think, is his cue. And he's given him the, the, the exact things he needs that somehow they have that just that ability to, to fortune tell, you know, and say, you're going to need this that's going to turn you invisible. You're going to need this that's going to explode oxygen. You're going to need this that's going to do this, even though we have no idea what you're going into right now. Or you may not even be going into a mission. You're just going to be attacked by, you know, robots or whatever. And you'll need these exact things. The the one that I thought was the most fun was um, they do a little joke where he's giving him all the things. And then here's here's your last bit of, of equipment. It's a belt. Oh, OK. So what's this for? It holds your pants up, you know, but then he actually ends up using the belt later on, <laughs> like five or six or seven issues later, because because they're half issues, you know, half of the this the book itself and he uses the belt it you know they it's, it's Chekhov's belt they they hung it on the wall in the first act and it got used in the third act so it, it did and there's there's even times where these little gadgets that seem to have the really esoteric and bizarre uses get used in multiple missions so it's mm -hmm. not like james bond where it's like man that thing he had with him three movies ago would have been really great right now well nick still carries that and yeah the other thing that i noticed right away with the james bond knockoff thing was he does the hat too, where he tosses the hat and it lands directly on the the um the coat tree. And you know he's this is definitely a James Bond inspiration. You know it's there and they're not hiding it. They they even reference it in the credits of one of the issues. I have to search through my notes if I can find it. But they're talking about you know how you know they want the MGM wants this for a movie or something like that. But they know it. They know it. But then they pull away from it and you get these other stories and you get Nick Fury training the the these agents and you get um captain america showing up and helping with the mission and say hey do you remember the time when and and you go from okay james bond knockoff to i'm running a spy agency in the marvel universe oh, yeah. and mr fantastic is going to help us you know because he's there and he's a part of the marvel universe yeah we also get some other subtle crossovers it's really steranko's run on jasper sitwell i think that made him a great character i really enjoy sitwell but this is one where <laughs> yeah. Steranko sets him up, and then he disappears from this book for a while because he pops over to Tales of Suspense, and he's got this long story arc in Iron Man story, hmm. which works incredibly well. To be frank, I was rather irritated watching Iron Man when Clark Gregg's character introduced himself as Phil Coulson. I was hoping for Jasper Sitwell because of that Iron Man run, and the character was created here in that form by Steranko. He's the one that gave him that definition where, you know, he becomes the guy that just effortlessly breezes through all of Stark's security, and by the time Tony Stark knows he's there, he's sitting in Tony's desk going, yeah, I'm assigned to you to work on security. I'm telling you, the fact that I'm sitting here right now in your desk tells you there's things we got to work on. And hmm. it became very difficult for Tony to keep his secret identity with Sitwell around, because Sitwell was just that good. And a lot of that, like I said, it came right out of here. The Wolverine Nick Fury Scorpio Connection graphic novel wouldn't exist if not for the Scorpio story in the first three issues of yep. the Nick Fury solo series. This is one... To get into our personal histories and how we first encountered it, I picked this up because I heard great reviews 
of a, a paperback collection that just had the Strange Tales and not the Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff. I picked up that collection based on those reviews, read it, and loved it, and then started tracking the rest down. The Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. issues themselves, those 15 issues are the oldest original issues I own. I have no problems reading things in reprints because I'm not getting comics to collect them. I'm getting them because I enjoy the stories. But it just looked like there was going to be no sign of reprinting them because Starenko and Marvel were not getting along well. And I didn't know it at the time I purchased it. I found out later it's because of that collection I had. Because Starenko didn't just innovate in terms of the way he made comics. He innovated in terms of artist contracts. He was one of the first that Marvel was contractually obligated to pay for reprints of his work. And they did that when reprints weren't really a thing. At that time, reprint comics were what you did when you didn't have a comic ready in time for this month's issue. You'd pull an old one and you'd reprint it, or you'd use it to fill out an annual or something like that. <laughs> they really were page fillers. And coming out of the bankruptcy that Marvel was going through in the late 90s, they brought in some pretty harsh accountants to cut the fat and just get through to survive. And at the time, that is what Marvel needed by and large. But when they were coming out of it and they were turning a profit again, the same bean counter started going through all these contracts in detail. And they ran across the Steranko nick Fury contract. These are good stories. They hadn't been reprinted in a while. They were ready to reprint them, but they found, oh, they'd have to pay the guy. But then one of the bean counters noticed it in the fine print. It specified reprinted with U.S. publishers. So if it was printed as new issues in the United Kingdom, there wouldn't be payment or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So as I said, I found out later, those bean counters farmed out this Nick Fury collection, and it's essentially Nick Fury by Steranko. It doesn't start with issue 135. It starts here. And they printed that through European sellers and then imported them back in the States to save a few bucks on a cheap printing house. And it cut out Steranko's stipend that he would have received had they printed it domestically. And there were a number of people at Marvel who found out about this after the fact who were not happy with it, some of whom knew how to get in touch with Jim Steranko and said, hey, this is what these guys did to you. So mm. then Steranko made that public, and it upset a lot of fans as well. And it irritated me. Had I known that, I would not have picked up that copy of the book. So then again, I may not be reading it now, because that's really what turned me into the Nick Fury fan that maybe try to get all of Nick Fury's comics. It has since been reprinted. So that year 2000 trade paperback is the only one that did that. Steranko has gotten what he is contractually supposed to be getting on all re subsequent reprints. Yeah, and that's that's the edition I have, is, that, is a 2013 edition. Obviously, they came out because of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on TV. And my understanding was I knew that there was some kind of thing where they cheated him out of some money. And I didn't know exactly what the details were there, uh, but that this edition they had made nice. And, and they I don't know how he feels about the slight that they did do. But I, I my understanding is he feels like they did do right by him, at least with this edition, uh, maybe the letter of doing right by him, if, if not the, the law of, of doing right by him. Yeah, from what I know, all third-hand accounts, because, you know, this was before, I think it may have been before Twitter, but it was certainly before I was aware of Twitter, and I think before Steranko was on Twitter, assuming that really is Steranko. There's some debate about that. And really? You ask him flat out, and he seems to revel in the ambiguity. I won't give you a straight answer, because that's probably more interesting. Yeah. But... And he's one of those guys. He's one of the one of those most interesting guys alive, kind of thing. He, yeah. he really is an interesting guy. Yeah, but it's the the impressions that I've gotten is that he didn't hold a grudge against Marvel as a company. He held a grudge against the individuals working at Marvel who made that decision. So he recognized it's those people, and that was the kind of decision that led to those specific individuals no longer working for Marvel. 
so they have okay. since been replaced. That stuff's not happening. So yeah, I suspect he's fine with Marvel as a company and sees it as a collection of individuals, and he takes people on the individual basis, which is actually something yeah, that I don't think enough people do. <laughs> that's that's I mean that's a pretty healthy way of going about it, I think. Now they are they've they've done this 2013 edition. They're doing some new editions. They're doing an omnibus that includes all the Kirby and Lee stuff. But again, I, I feel like that's coming about because not uh, yes, the TV show is bringing some light to it. But if it wasn't really good, they wouldn't be printing that great big giant huge hardcover omnibus edition that's going to include all this stuff in there. And yeah. I, now, my my personal history here is literally the TV show came. We were doing a podcast about the TV show and we said, we got to read this stuff. And I did go then into Marvel Unlimited and read some of the other stuff where, you know, they they, they bring him into S.H.I.E.L.D., you know, and those, those earlier stories that, that was not Steranko. And then I read a few of these early Steranko stories and then a couple of the the stories from his the, the solo series and enjoyed it. But again, this was then 300 pages sitting and thinking, OK, I like it. I'll get into it later. And and then this this came about. I'm like, OK, good. I can get into this now. And then when I started reading it, like I said, I wasn't feeling so good about getting into it. But as every page turned, I felt like okay, I'm watching the development of an artist almost where he's being forced to copy another artist, which is actually a healthy way to grow as an artist, to, to look at other artists, see what they're doing, you know, mimic and, and copy, see their techniques, but then make it your own. And then by the end of this 300 pages, you're just into some you're into some really interesting Eisner ish type of things where, you know, the the background is giving you the title of the, the story. And, and it's a part of the image that the characters are, are, are running around. And so, yeah, for me, my diving into this came from this podcast that we're doing here. My desire came from just knowing. And because Stranko, he's one of those guys where he's a giant because he deserves to be a giant. And I was familiar with him. And I, I'm like, Stranko, S.H.I.E.L.D. can't go wrong. And I felt like it was going wrong at the beginning, though. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, as you said, it's. Yeah, you, we do see the growth and development, and it's a lot of it is him figuring out what is the industry like and how can I push it? How can I turn it into something other than what it is? Because I think it can be better. And he's trying to to do this. He's not just one of the guys in the 60s who was doing it to push pencils and to make a buck and pay the bills, which a lot of these guys were. I mean, given the fallout from more of them and things like that, most people who were working through the comics book industry were there because they felt they had no choice. Yeah, I mean, the money was in commercial art. There was next to no money in comic art. You were embarrassed to tell people that you worked in comic books because they'd assume that you were part of this problem that was warping the children of the day. You know, it's that 20-year cycle. In the 1930s, people blamed movies and gangster movies in particular for juvenile delinquency. Because, you know, everyone remembers that their childhood, their kids, there wasn't the juvenile delinquency that there is in the modern generation. <laughs> so in the 30s, they blame the gangster movies because that was the new and most violent influence that the kids were exposed to, hence the birth of the Motion Picture Association of America and the ratings board. In the 1950s, well, they were blaming comics, hence the birth of the Comics Code Authority. In the 70s, they were pointing fingers at Dungeons and Dragons. In the 90s, they were pointing the fingers at Doom and other first-person shooters, and there we get the ESRB. Right? It goes in these cycles. I'm just waiting for the next bugaboo to come around the corner because that 20-year cycle is do any day now. <laughs> but that's a lot of what it was coming out of. 
people were were pointing at comics. So these guys in this era, some of them seemed to be passionate about the medium. Some of them were just there to do the job and pay the bills. So that's what a lot of them were. If they couldn't get commercial art, they would do this, frequently under pseudonyms. So they had some deniability. They wouldn't necessarily be recognized on the street and wouldn't have that comic book credit sort of, you know, giving them a bad name. And this is all of them. I mean, that's why Stan Lee chose to write his comics under a pseudonym when he started with Captain America Comics number three. And he got stuck with it, even though, because his real name was going to be for the, when he wrote his novel. And exactly. He was, when he became the world famous novelist, he didn't want people to associate him with comic books. He didn't actually start to embrace it until he was ready to quit the company in the early 60s. And, you know, his uncle and boss said, okay, well, just give me one superhero book that, you know, Justice League of America is selling really well with the other guys. Give me a good, solid superhero team book and whatever. And his wife's going, well, you know, if this is your last book anyway, write it the way you've always wanted to write it. Write it with the realistic relationships. Write it with people who don't get along. And he had so much fun writing Fantastic Four and Number One that he kept at it. And that became Marvel Comics because he was allowed to write the way he wanted to write. And lo and behold, he started enjoying the medium again. I just read that story that you told about him going through that that personal process from the uh, Origin of Marvel Comics collection, where he wrote a he wrote a blurb before each title, and and he tells that story in in the blurb that he where where Fantastic Four came from, and yeah, I mean, but then you you do get the the sense some of the comics that he's written though you just feel like he's just doing it to get it done, and and I get that sense here with with Shield, and then when it turns over to Steranko and he just he breathes life into it and a new a new life into it and this personally for me then reading this it just brought excitement to me not just because of the storytelling and not just because of what Steranko is doing but because I could feel what Steranko was feeling I think I I could feel like Steranko was able to okay I'm gonna do this and I'm going to do you know three pages with no dialogue and just let the story go you know and I'm going to Later on, when he's we cuts to the Nazi scene during the Scottish Moorland uh, <laughs> mystery or whatever, and there's just all this words, you know, coming down the down the page and and going along inside the the art, and it's stuff that it's taken for granted now. I mean, all the stuff that he does in this book, you see it all over the place now. But if he wasn't the first person to do it, he was one of the early best people to do it, yeah. and it just. It excited me to read through and be able to see the development of this storyteller, really, as he's pushing the art, but pushing himself, too. And I could feel his excitement and his joy. This may not have been the only industry he wanted to be a part of, but he definitely, as a part of the industry, wanted to be when he was there and and was doing great stuff that now it's it's just common. Now it's part of the language of comics. But then it was being written. It, the language was, of comics was being written, and he got to be a part of that. It's it's exciting to me when I'm reading those 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 last four issues because issue four of uh, Agent of, of Nick Fury, Agent of Shield, was a reprint too. I don't. I'm, I'm actually what I'm not sure what it reprinted. So it was like the first couple of issues from from uh, the Strange Tales series or or what it was. But it, the cover is in my collection, and it says Shield Origin issue. <laughs> And uh, it's a cool cover. I mean, that's the other thing is his covers, especially on Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., they're wonderful. I mean, they are works of pop art. They are they're they're worthy of hanging on maybe not a museum wall, but definitely my wall. <laughs> if if it was a poster issue one of Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. is that 
the those blocks where you have the characters kind of all you know, kind of slinking around these cubes. I mean, it's not anything that actually happens within the pages. It's a metaphorical representation of what happens within the pages, but it's it's awesome. And the issue four cover is a classic, uh, just a classic Nick Fury image of him with all of these kind of designs and and using the uh, the tones of, of lines and stuff like that to really pop out. He's in color and behind him, you have all this black and white artwork. And it's it's a classic for a reason. I've seen a number of people ape this cover with other characters or, you know, I've actually seen one that someone did with Coulson from from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. But it's it's just one of those things. And then the other cover that I love that I don't if I ever saw it, I would buy it without even a, a second thought. I'm, I'm trying to find the, the actual issue that it was on. But it was on one of the reprint issues that they did that was reprinting some stories that he. Yeah, it's, it's Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. issue number six. So I don't think it was a reprint, but it's the, the space one where he is wearing this incredibly pulpy awesome spacesuit. The earth is exploding behind him and it's just, I love it. I, I love it. And then issue seven, you have him and he's running on this landscape that was, uh, you know, drawn by Dolly. Uh, I mean, it wasn't actually drawn by him, but it looks like, you know, it's, it's a Dolly esque kind of thing. And yeah, certainly inspired by, yeah. So these covers that he's doing, he's pushing that too. Yes. He he's done a lot of that. And just to fill in a little bit of detail there, uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. issue four wasn't technically a reprint. It was a retailing of Strange Tales 135 with additional details. Oh, okay. And by uh, Roy Thomas and Frank Springer. So okay. So what... that 10-page story and added more details to it. And and Stranko then wasn't a part of that, it looks like, then. Yeah, all he did was the, the cover. So it sounds like, you know, Stranko had no problems keeping up with the the schedules that he had when he was doing 10 pages a month like this. <laughs> you know, he was one of the first major writer-artist combinations, which I think is part of the reason things engage so well. Because when if you look at the way Lee and Kirby were doing Fantastic Four, even when they were really hitting it on all cylinders, you could see moments where it looked like Stanley had one thing in mind when he outlined, Jack Kirby read it a different way or filled in different details with a certain idea when he penciled it, and then there wasn't enough communication so that when Stanley put the dialogue on top, it didn't mesh with the artwork. That's very apparent in some of the Ditko Spider-Man issues towards the end of Ditko's run. When Steranko's the writer and artist, that can't happen. But it does take more time. So we get the fill-ins because, you know, he was fast enough to produce more than 10 pages a month, but I don't know that he was fast enough to produce a full 22-page issue a month when he's penciling and writing. So it looks like there's just kind of people filling in on the schedule, even when he did the artwork in full issues later on, you know, Captain America. He would do three consecutive issues, take an issue off, and then do a fourth. That just seems to be the pace that okay. he's comfortable working at. That makes sense. Speaking of filling in art and stuff like that, and, and repurposing, I should say, uh, his two-page kind of tryout for Nick Fury that he did, which is in the collection that I have, they are using that for uh, an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. comic issue that's coming out here in, I think, September. Uh, might be October. But it's it's they're using that to I think basically as a flashback and then they'll, they'll have a framing story around it. But uh, Mark Wade is incorporating that into the story. The man called death, which is what uh, Nick Fury was going to be before he was agent of shield and death stood for director of external atomic threat headquarters. So it's not an organization. It's a title. You are death. You are the director of external atomic threat 
headquarters. Yeah, I like S.H.I.E.L.D. better, even though it's kind of an awkward acronym. It If every threat has to be atomic threat, then that kind of limits the storytelling. Yeah, I'm not sure where they could change that too, but yeah, they definitely chose better with, with S.H.I.E.L.D. And yeah, as awkward as that is, in every iteration that they've done with the different variations of what it could stand for, it's better than the man called Death. It is, yeah. I think S.H.I.E.L.D. has stood for at least three different things over the years, and Actually, I think on the TV series, Grant Ward put it best when, you know, Maria Hill said, you know, what does S.H.I.E.L.D. stand for? He told her, what does that mean to you? It means someone really wanted their name to spell S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, yeah. which is true. That's what we in the backgrounds in particle physics call a backronym. I used to work on the Atlas experiment. Someone really wanted it to be named Atlas. Atlas is an acronym for A, toroidal, LHC. <laughs> apparatus with the last s in apparatus being the last s in atlas i wrote a series called time flies and there's a character named nexus with uh, periods after each letter i still don't know what it stands for uh from here we should probably move on to the section of the podcast that we have so shamelessly stolen from mission log a roddenberry star trek podcast when we took a look for the messages morals and meanings in this and you know if there's any sort of lessons that can be gleaned from these issues I'm not going to have nearly as much to say as I did on the Silver Surfer episode. <laughs> but there's like there's a couple things that I get out of this. And, and one is not from the stories, but from the storytelling. And I've already kind of talked about that is here. I see someone pushing forward as an artist on, on each issue. And that's something I try to do as an artist. And when I say artist, not as an artist artist, but as a as a writer. Anytime I work on something, especially something where I'm repeating myself. So I've, I've done this kind of project before. I always try and do something new, at least new to me. You know, I always try and make it so that I'm I'm pushing myself to to be better. And that is something I get out of this is Stranko is pushing himself to do his best and to be his best. And so it doesn't come from the actual storytelling. It doesn't come from any of the character arcs or anything like that. It's definitely something that I get out of reading this and why I am, am gushing over it, really. Mm-hmm. It, it really comes down to the, the gushing comes down to what I'm seeing happen here because there is some stuff that i see i mean there's some stiff anatomy you know there's 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 problems with with some of the artwork that it's not 100 perfect this is not him at the top of his game this is him at the beginning of his game in, in a lot of ways and but again just seeing that and and seeing that that appear on the page that's that's one of the big things that i get from from reading this yeah i would certainly agree with that the only thing i would get from the, the story itself is that you know, it, it's kind of the, it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. if anything, respect for those who are working for protection of the general public. Because there's a few times we see Nick Fury wants a personal life, can't have one. And yes. There, there's yeah. elements like that with other characters because he is saying, no, this is my job. I mean, if anything, it's with great power comes great responsibility. Right. He is, yeah, it's just a different kind of power. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's his responsibility to protect the world and, you know, America in particular. But, you know, if he wants to protect freedom and the American principles, even if they're not in America, well, he will do that, too. And that's something that's a big part of Nick Fury's character is if the most efficient way to get the job done means breaking some of the laws he's here to protect. Well, you know, he, he would rather become a murderer himself than allow another innocent to die. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he is definitely making the hard choices. And there are some minor moral quandaries that he gets into where he's trying to which which way do I go with this? And a lot of it is just straight up, though. This got to be done. I'm doing it. And 
and, and that's that's one thing you know there's there's not a lot of uh tension uh is he going to get it done is he going to win is he going to stop the bomb from devolving everyone in the world yeah yeah he's going to the question then is how is he going to and that's where the storytelling it takes you along and, and it's a good journey to go along so yeah I mean, yeah it really boils down to you know the question is not will he su- succeed the question is how much scotch is he going to be pouring over those rocks at the end of the day when it's all cleared and behind him and he has a chance to actually think about what he's just done? Yeah, and, and any tension comes from the supporting cast. Yeah. And and uh, are they going to make it through? And it's the same thing with James Bond, you know? One of my favorite James Bonds is where is the Honor Majesty's Secret Service. He gets married, you know, and you know he's going to make it through. He's the franchise. The franchise is named after him. But there's people around him. And you can get emotional tension out of those things happening to the people around him. And there, there's some of that here, too. The other thing you can learn from this is that girls can be spies, too. Yeah. She flips him. <laughs> Although I, I do find it interesting that it is coming. It's his mouth saying, ah, girls can't be spies, you know, <laughs> and, and then she flips him over her shoulder. And, OK. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And we also learn that, you know, sometimes Dum Dum is a better name than the one you were born with. <laughs> yeah, that's. Uh, Dum Dum Dugan, we knew his actual initials were uh, T.A.C. Dugan from the first couple of issues of Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. And this is where we actually find out what the T.A.C. stands for. The uh, Timothy Aloysius Cadwallader Dugan. Aloysius. And to be fair to him, uh, Dum Dum, that nickname, they weren't calling him an idiot. There's no bees on those dums. That's the, the name of the weaponry that he was adept at in World War II. Dum Dum was a nickname for a particular type of weapon. Yeah, now, Dum Dum has become a favorite agent of mine, mainly because of the Godzilla series that, that Marvel did. I got, and I got that essential, and I get so much joy out of that. I wouldn't have that if we didn't have this. And there's just a lot of things you can say for this, where if Stranko hadn't done what he had, what he did, things would be different. The, the history may have ended up playing out the way it did to where it is part of the language, all those things he created. Someone would have done it. Will Eisner was doing a lot of this kind of thing even before Steranko. But yeah, if this hadn't, if he hadn't have done what he did, if he hadn't been the forceful personality that he was as well, yeah, we we wouldn't. And and that's again, here's an artist getting to be himself and do what he's enjoying. And yeah, that's that's the big thing I get out of this. Yeah, and doing it very well. I mean, one of the things that we like to do when we wrap these up is say why we think it managed to land at this point in the countdown. And I think we've covered a lot of that. I mean, there's three elements. That will land something on the countdown. There's entertainment value. There's importance to continuity in the industry. And there's the the messages and the higher meanings and the deep thoughts it forces you to have. Mm-hmm. It's light in that category. Entertainment, gross. You know, if you read those first couple issues where he's just finishing the job that Stan and Jack started, it's kind of bland. And it's not terrible. It's just those issues don't deserve a spot on this list. But it becomes very entertaining once Steranko is allowed to cut loose and be Steranko. And once Steranko figures out who Steranko is. That's true. And, yeah. I, and I would agree. I think that that's a big reason why this is on the, the list here is it just the entertainment value is there, especially in the, you know, the back two thirds of, of the collection. Anyway, that I have the entertainment value, even if you're not enjoying the story, there's stuff to enjoy in the art. And there's going to be a, I think there's entertainment in every panel, really. Um, even when I'm, I'm like, oh, the story feels a little James Bondy, okay, whatever. But James Bond didn't have fights where basically he's a skeleton being seen through radiation. Yeah. That just didn't happen. 
in James Bond. Now it happened in what? Oh, what's the Arnold Schwarzenegger? A Total Recall. You know, it happened there because of technology and they were animating a skeleton or whatever. But in, in comics, True Lies? Uh, maybe both, actually. Yeah. yeah, True Lies was the spy one. And I seem to well, Tom Arnold's skeleton scratching things. But I do remember there was because he was in the, the woman costume in, in Total Recall. Yeah. Where he was yeah. the fat woman. And I think there was like he went behind. And anyway, whichever one it was, that's a movie. And that's 20 years later more you know it so there's entertainment to be had all over the place in this and yeah but I, I i do say if you read this start at the beginning of the of his run and 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 slog through those earlier ones because you get to watch him grow and it's well worth the slog even though i was eyeing those dr strange covers and thinking yeah. that looks so cool yeah dr strange having read the, the complete run of dr strange from Strange Tales 110 into his own solo series. I will say those are worth reading as well. But yeah, if you're listening to this and you have any interest in creating your own comics and making them, analyzing this run, when you see Steranko become Steranko and you see that growth pattern that Ben has talked about so much, I can't imagine how it wouldn't help you in producing your own content. But it has value beyond educational. I mean, it definitely has an entertainment value as well. Oh yeah. And as we said, it transformed the role of Nick Fury and the various agents and the organization of S.H.I.E.L.D. itself in the context of the Marvel Universe. All right, so I think that about wraps up everything we have to say, aside from it's very easy to recommend it, although if you're going to pick up a collected edition, avoid the year 2000 printing, track down the year 2013 that Ben has. Not only does it include the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. standalone issues from his own series that the original one didn't include, but Steranko gets a well-deserved cut of that cover price. And there's a lot of extras in the back. Well, I shouldn't say a lot, but there's a number of extras on the back. Early versions of some of the covers, early versions of some of the pages, and two different introductions from two different collections. You know, it's got a price tag of 35 bucks, but you know, you're getting 350 pages. That's, that's pretty good by my, by my accounting. So it is, especially considering uh, when I bought the Nick Fury series, I bought them as cheaply as I could get them in still readable shape. And I think I still spent 60 bucks on the first issue. It's the most I've ever spent on a comic. Hmm. So collecting them without a collected edition is going to cost you a whole lot more. <laughs> All right. So Ben, thanks again for joining us. And do you want to remind people about where they can hear you right now? Yeah, you can hear me on uh, the comic book time machine at comicbooktimemachine.com. But more apropos to what we're talking about here, uh, welcome to level seven, which is welcome to level com. Uh, seven is spelled out. We purchased the seven with the numeral, but no one uses that. I think it forwards correctly, but seven is spelled out. So I would go to that. And, you know, we're, we're talking about the, the new season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We've been talking about, you know, the Daredevil Netflix series, all the movies as they come out and all of that stuff. Literally all of that stuff would not be what it is if it wasn't for what we're holding or what I'm holding in my hands right now. My chubby, grubby little hands here. It, but, yeah, we're. We're having fun doing that, and it's it's every episode, every week when there's a new episode, we record about that particular episode of the show. And Netflix is kind of throwing some monkey wrenches at us, but we're we're getting there. We're we're figuring it out. And uh, yeah, so we we've covered Agent Carter, all the MCU stuff. So and we do comic episodes every month too to cover the the Shield comics that are, that are coming out. Yeah, and I believe you did an episode on the uh, recent Fantastic Four film as well, which isn't quite part of the mcu but <laughs> but it deserved some conversation and a lot of that just ended up being 
our love letter to Fantastic Four and why that movie was not a love letter to Fantastic Four, to put it in gentle terms. Oh, yeah. Ugh, that movie was frustrating simply because it had the title Fantastic Four. It would have been a nice, mediocre sci-fi superhero sh- movie with a different title. If it had been Chronicle 2, I might have even given it a thumb kind of up. But yeah. it was it was called Fantastic Four, and yet it wasn't Fantastic Four. That was the number one sin of that movie. Yeah, I'll get into that in detail when I go through the Fantastic Four movies in the Silver Screen Superhero series that we do once a month. Uh, spoiler, the only good Fantastic Four movie to date is The Incredibles. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I did a podcast episode of my Strangers and Aliens podcast that's four Fantastic movies to watch instead of Fantastic Four. And it's basically the the stuff that Fantastic Four was meant to give us, that the movie itself was meant to give us. Here's four movies that actually do give you that. And it's getting into the, the body horror I- idea, the sci-fi aspect of things, the family of heroes or the energetic, you know, fun hero. And, and uh, yeah, that movie, normally I can forgive a movie because I can see what the director wanted to give. And this one, I saw what the director wanted to give. And it may not be what we actually got, but it certainly was not what I wanted. No. But anyway, that's something else that people can go back and listen to if they'd like. Or if you want to hear my thoughts now, Bureau42.com has the print review. You can go back and search for the opening weekend. Anyway, for those who are reading along with this podcast at home, you can join us again next week for the Master Planner Trilogy of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 1, Issues 31 to 33, which has since been reprinted in Marvel Tales 24 to 26, Marvel Tales Starring Spider-Man 170 to 172, Marvel Masterwork Spider-Man Volume 4, Essential Spider-Man Volume 2, Marvel Visionary Steve Ditko, The Amazing Spider-Man Omnibus Volume 1, The Very Best of Spider-Man Contains Issue 33 Only, 100 Greatest Marvels of All Time Issue 3 Contains Issue 33 Only, and they are all also available on the Git Corp DVD and CD-ROM collections of Amazing Spider-Man, on Comixology, and on Marvel Digital Unlimited. So in the meantime, feel free to rate this or any other show that you listen to on iTunes or on Stitcher. The ratings do help the shows get noticed. Share links to the show with friends who you think may be interested. You can join us in the Facebook discussion forum. And one of the other shows that's coming out today is this month's Comic Book Physics, which, as we do every month, will be inspired by this week's episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast. So feel free to check those out and share. And finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the -the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntress. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.